electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm John Fort. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Fort. Today, are tech stocks cheap and still not worth buying? Ahead of the Fed, the investor debate over valuations at these prices. One example might be Chegg and the difficulty of catching a falling knife was down 70 percent. A pandemic darling now down another 40 cratering after poor guidance. The CEO is going to join us this hour. And then new this morning, some bearish comments from a few investing titans. Ray Dalio warns that even though tech valuations have come in, still not a good time to get long equities. While Paul Tudor Jones said this this morning on Squawk. You can't think of a worse macro environment than, than where we are right now. Clearly still some market anxiety at these levels. And, John, we continue to turn to analogs that we have in the recent past, like the dot-com bust, where the Nasdaq had a similar fall to this one, but then continued to tumble in the next couple of years. Yeah, you know, uh, right here I was asking Low Tony yesterday whether this was a historic opportunity not to buy anything. Mm -hmm. And, And so many of the CEOs that I'm talking to both on the sort of large, large cap side and, and smaller startup companies. They've got a siege mentality, but some feel like they're inside the walls uh, being laid siege to. Some feel like they're outside the walls, and it's a question of resources and business health. Do they have enough resources to, to tough out a perhaps extended difficult time when it might, might be difficult to raise funding, uh, sure, from the public markets, but even in the private markets, as some of these venture capital investors mm-hmm. start to be choosier about who they give capital to, companies that they think are going to be able to acquire and grow, and the companies that are just burning cash as part yeah. of their vision longer term, maybe they don't get more money. So. Uh, I think investors in the public markets need to think in those terms as well and think beyond the stock price and even beyond revenue growth to assess health, D, and, and that's something we've certainly yeah. been talking about a bit more. That revenue that revenue quality, and as PTJ said this morning, um, this moment, he says, is about capital preservation. So, you know, our job, of course, is to tease out the opportunity, but um, a lot of sort of ominous thinking and advice this morning. It's going to be a big week, guys. Uh, in terms of consumer spending, we've been keeping a close eye on the demand side of the picture, which many CEOs tell us remains strong. But take a look at Expedia. Reporting this yesterday, you saw a bump up in the stock, and now it's down more than 15%. So I'm saying that this recovery is already baked in. So how does that bode for Airbnb, which is going to report after the bell today? It's one of the biggest laggards on the Nasdaq 100. And then, Carl, you've got Uber and Lyft. If the recovery was baked into Expedia, certainly we have not seen that kind of run up in the ride sharing names. But this is a market, to John's point, that wants to see profitable growth. And I'm just not sure. I mean, adjusted EBITDA profitability was tough anyways. And I think that metric is going to be even tougher going forward for investors to digest. Yeah, it's been interesting to see how that reopening play, certainly the travel play, 
has uh, collapsed today with Expedia and Hilton to some degree. Our next guest does see a potential burst bubble and says to look toward high value, low price tech names like semis to weather the storm. Joining us this morning is Bernstein's Tony Saganaki. Tony, welcome back. You do right. Uh, is there more pain for high price tech? Potentially, but we're far less worried than we were to start the year. Is that just because everything's come in? Uh, good morning. Uh, yes, it is. I mean, we have been focused on the most expensive technology stocks for the last year, year and a half. And what I mean by that are the 20% of tech stocks that are the most expensive in the market. And why we focus on those is if they become very elevated, they could certainly fall more and have a cascading impact on the rest of the market. And when the market peaked for tech in November of 2021, that cohort of the most expensive tech stocks was trading on average at 17 times revenues. Today, they're trading at six times revenues. Historical average is about four and a half. And on a relative basis, we're close to historical average. So we feel a lot better about you know, the, the risk of downside for expensive technology stocks than we did at the beginning of the year. Now, of course, we could have a market drawdown that goes further, higher beta, more expensive stocks will fall more. But six months ago, you know, we really saw valuation levels, particularly at the top end of tech values, that were really unprecedented other than the dot-com bubble. And we've seen some coming in for that, and that's had a cascading impact for the rest of the technology marketplace. Right. I guess the question for some investors, Tony, is do we think about it where a reasonable baseline on valuation now is just unwinding the COVID bubble, getting back to pre-COVID valuations, or pricing in an additional level of pain if you think there's, say, a 50-50 recession risk? Yeah, I think you know that's the operative question in the marketplace, because I think if you look at tech valuations on current earnings, they're not that far off from historical averages. So tech's trading at about a 30% premium to the market. Historical average is about 25%. So certainly, on a relative basis, tech has come much more in line. The question, obviously, is are these firm and real earnings? Mm -hmm. If we have an economic um, downturn, earnings will be cut. They'll likely be cut more for tech, and there'll be continued depreciation in stock prices. And I think I think that's that's really the big question that all your guests are talking about is the likelihood of an economic slowdown and the mm -hmm. likelihood that prevailing estimates are, are, are going to go down. So, Tony, when we talk about uh, real earnings, I wonder, what do you do with the ride sharing companies? I mean, they certainly have not seen the kind of run up, even if you think that they are reopening plays. And of course, their earnings, they like to use the metric adjusted EBITDA. What do you do with them? Do you think there's value here? Um, on many of the metrics that we look at, uh, some of the ride filling companies are still expensive. One of the characteristics of this marketplace has been that um, we've had a high number of technology stocks that are unprofitable. That peaked at about 35% of all tech stocks in November. It's now come down. But I think the market is will continue to be punitive for names that don't have viable levels of profitability in the near term to the degree that we continue to have pressure on the marketplace and more broadly, I think unprofitable companies will continue to be you, impacted. When you say profitable, Tony, what metric are you using? Is that gap net profits or is it some of the other measures that tech companies like to use? 
It's it's reported net income, so that's a okay. non-GAAP net income number, not an EBITDA number. Hey, Tony, I want to go back to tech's valuation premium you were just referring to, um, about 31% above the market versus uh, 25% the historical average. Isn't that still kind of high? Because you think about the historical average, that's not the historical norm. So in good times, it should be a little better than 25%. In bad times, a bit lower than 25%. I think the consensus might have shifted to we're heading into bad times. And so if we're at 31, right, when maybe we should be closer to 21, that's a bit more of a gap, isn't it? Right. Well, John, it's a great question, and it's a big investor debate because I think you you certainly argued one point of view. The other point of view is that um, many investors would say, well, look, we're seeing a level of digital transformation happening in the technology sector that is probably historically unprecedented, other than maybe the dot-com. And that level of digital transformation means that we're having higher margin, more recurring revenue, SaaS companies that are more prevalent in the marketplace. Those companies deserve better valuations. So if this, if this was a normal time and the historical premium was 25%, but we have higher levels of digital transformation and we have more companies with higher margins and recurring revenues like SaaS companies, shouldn't that premium be higher? And I think that's the, the push and pull on that debate. Finally, Tony, uh, what leads you to semis? Uh, you know, for a long time, we've talked about the, the, the vulnerability, the liability of being hardware-based versus software, just given what, what supply chains are doing all around the world. What makes you so confident? Um, look, I, I'm not sure where we have a crystal ball by any sense. And a lot of the work that we do is uh, quantitatively driven. And again, we have a bias, a continued bias towards more value-oriented names. So when we look at names that have uh, what we call high quality, uh, so uh, good accounting, good visibility on earnings, um, et cetera, a lot of the ones that turn up are semiconductor names. So those include names like NXP, Microchip, uh, Skyworks, Corvo, et cetera, that have been beaten down. Uh, again, I think it's always important to layer fundamentals and sentiment on top. But when we look at a marketplace that has continued to punish companies that don't have real earnings, that don't have, that do have high uh, valuation multiples, and we think there's a risk that that can persist, we're looking for the opposite, companies that generally have pretty good cash flow visibility and are trading at, at reasonable multiples. Interesting. Well, uh, viewers are definitely looking for some fresh frameworks, Tony. Uh, this is one of them. Appreciate it as always. We'll see you soon. Thanks for having me, Carl. Now let's get to a company at the intersection of a couple of things we were just talking about. Digital transformation, certainly in education, but also a growth company uh, that, that isn't churning out a lot of profits. That's Chegg. Shares are plummeting on earnings. CEO Dan Rosenzweig joins us now. Uh, Dan, uh, first of all, I, I know that you set up the quarter itself was good, but the guide, based on some fundamentals happening with the economy and with education, um, you cut 7%. But I want to ask first about Chegg itself. What is the impact in this environment to the way you run your business? I'm thinking about costs, your cash position, any belt tightening. Um, are, are you watching operating expenses and, and how they might be growing faster than revenue? Yeah, look, we've always had that discipline. Um, and so it's, it's a very 
difficult time to run any business because all the macro factors continue to evolve and almost none of them are in your control. However, within that environment, you can control what you do. So, um, as you said, we brought our guidance down 7%. I, you know, the reaction seems uh, a little strong for uh, changing the guidance by 7% and still growing. So we are growing. By the way, we do produce adjusted EBITDA of, I think we estimated about $250 million. We do produce 50 to 60% of that to free cash flow. So we are one of those companies that actually does grow and produces profits and produces cash. So we're in a very strong position to operate. Having said that, we have a challenge in the moment, um, given all the macro conditions that we talked about on the call, uh, with the U.S. higher education market where students are choosing to earn over learn right now. They're taking fewer classes. They're less academically rigorous. They're opting for more hours because there's more hours. And we know all of this is happening. We know all of it is temporary. The international business is growing. Our skills business is growing. So we're actually seeing really good opportunities ahead of us. So in this time, we are just very prudent in the short term. We invest in things that we're very confident will get an ROI and we'll get an ROI soon. We're making those long-term investments in technology, the platform, the content for international growth. We're making it in our partnership with Guild, which is going spectacularly well to begin with. But in the U.S. market, we recognize that our efforts are in the funnel as opposed to the top of the funnel until the top of the funnel comes back. So we are being a little bit more prudent, a little bit smarter. Uh, but we are, I think, the only ed tech company in the public markets that actually produces uh, adjusted EBITDA and free cash flow. So we have an advantage. Plus, we have a billion six on the balance sheet. So um, and by getting rid of the textbooks business as owning it, we no longer use any cash for that. And that will be margin accretive. So we think we set ourselves up, John, for exactly the kinds of questions you're asking. OK. And so that perhaps seals off some of the opportunities you might have looked to for further M&A in the near term. But does it focus your R&D efforts in a particular way also in the near term to set you up for, um, you know, I guess an acceleration perhaps out of this period since you say you expect it to be temporary? Yeah. So in the U.S., our focus has been on moving more people to the bundle over the basic package, which is 1995 versus 1495, which means the more successful we are in that, it's about $25 more a customer with pretty much all margins. It all goes to the bottom line because it's the same set of products that we are already investing in. So in that case, we're seeing record take rate of our check study pack. That will mean for future years, every customer we have will be significantly more profitable. So Outside the U.S., we're investing in the platform that allows us to present in local pricing, not only in local pricing, but local currency and then local currency, the right price value equation for those markets. We have huge top of the funnel in India and Indonesia and Philippines uh, and Mexico and Turkey. What we don't have yet, because we only just be we're just built it, is the ability to price at what the local price should be. That should accelerate our growth outside the U.S. And then our skills business, our relationship with Guild, they have over a relationship with over 4 million frontline users. We are not doing academic support there. We're actually doing job skilling, of which cybersecurity is our number one skill. So we see a lot of growth coming out of this just in the U.S. We've got to be smart right now. That's all. Dan, good morning. It's Deirdre. Good to see you um, on the call with analysts. You talk a lot about inflation and the macro environment was the reason that you're seeing fewer and less rigorous students and expect that sort of in the future. But what makes you confident that it's inflation and not simply coming out of the pandemic, people getting back to work, which would be more of a structural challenge for the company? 
Yeah, we said it. We, we, we said, or if we didn't say it, we meant to say that it's both, which is the question that I was answering is what's changed since, um, since our last report. So what's changed is in addition to the economy. So the structural issue is that a million people left higher education to go to work rather than to take classes at all in the last two years. That is the top of the funnel issue. Um, that obviously affects our business because those are the people who are people who are going to either two-year colleges or who are going to four-year state schools that perhaps were never on a path or not on the path to complete within four years. That group of people chose earning over learning, so they either took they either delayed their enrollment or they reduced the amount of classes they're taking. That we believe is a temporary issue, driven by the fact that we have wage inflation. That is allowing people to get paid a lot more. And who can blame them rather than taking on debt, actually reducing their debt? So it makes perfect sense to us that they're choosing to do that right now. But overall, there are 50 percent of the world's population below the age of 30. And, and if you believe like we do, that more of them are going to be studying, more of them are going to need academic support and help, more of them are going to need job skills, then you know that Chegg is the right company in the right position because um, you know, although this issue we believe to be temporary in the U.S. market, outside the U.S. we're seeing that growth. The skills market is seeing that growth. And we do believe it's going to come back in the U.S. Right. Uh, and we are very profitable and we produce cash flow and we have cash. So we're in a great position to accelerate our leadership in difficult times. Well, we've all got something to learn. So you definitely have that <laughs> going so, for Particularly you, your curriculum, John, which is very valuable and very important. Thank you. Dan Rosenzweig <laughs> from Chegg. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Dan. Uh, we want to turn now to another story that we've been watching very closely. That is a union voted a second Amazon facility on Staten Island. Workers rejecting this proposal this time around after a separate group of warehouse workers voted in favor last month. You may remember that surprise victory. A lawyer for the Amazon Labor Union, or ALU, says the group plans to challenge the outcome of the election. The vote comes as workers around the country, they're looking to fight for better pay and more benefits. As an example, just this morning, Apple Store workers in Maryland have begun a union drive. As with past votes, the outcome at either company not having an outsized material impact on either company's stock. No surprise there, Carl. Still a long way to go, but uh, you could argue that the traction continues. Yeah, interesting to watch those results come in last night. Still to come this hour, Logitech lowering guidance. We got an activist at Western Dig, plus Elon Musk reportedly seeking more financing for Twitter. Tech Check's just getting started. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Let's get a gut check on Logitech's. Shares are under pressure today after the consumer electronics company reported a 20% drop in sales 
from a year earlier. Logitech also cutting its 2023 outlook, facing headwinds from the invasion of Ukraine. The company now expecting sales growth of between 2 and 4%. The stock now down 21% for the year, Carl, back to July 2020 levels. Meanwhile, John, the broader market hovering higher today ahead of the Fed meeting. Uh, but with the Nasdaq 100 trading right around year-to-date lows, our Mike Santoli's here looking at the areas of strength in tech that have kept the sell-off from being even worse. Mike? Yeah, Carl, at least uh, relative strength, I guess you would call it in most cases. Take a look here at the NASDAQ 100 year-to-date, along with some of those names that have outperformed. Now, the, you know, the NASDAQ 100, we often treat as synonymous with tech and Internet. It's about 70 75 percent that, but also uh, plenty of other stuff in there. So here you have T-Mobile has been actually, oh, we don't have it here, but T-Mobile, a big net positive contributor uh, to the upside, or at least relative upside in, uh, in tech here. But also, how about Kraft Heinz? Yes, a NASDAQ stock. Amgen, Vertex Pharmaceutical. Now, Apple's been a negative net contributor, but has well outperformed uh, the broader NASDAQ 100 index. I mean, we got utilities in there, Exelon, American Electric Power, Keurig, Dr. Pepper. So essentially, if the NASDAQ 100 looks like it's not really reflecting the degree of carnage in a lot of high growth tech and software, it's because mostly because of non-tech or some telecom in there as well. I guess the question is how much, how big of a weighting can that possibly get, even with the tech coming in, Mike? Yeah, I mean, it, it can't do all the work, uh, obviously, and maybe even the defensive sectors aren't going to uh, have much absolute upside left. Yesterday, you actually saw weakness uh, near the lows in some of the defensive areas. So the big question is, what are the heavyweights likely to do from here? Are we still going to have to see valuation kind of bleed out of them uh, to, to sort of, you know, have a full reckoning with uh, with how expensive they got and, and the new growth picture out there. And, you know, the real big question, I see a lot of uh, sort of people doing chart work on this saying you have so many stocks that have gone back to pre-pandemic levels. Uh, can Apple really kind of stay, uh, you know, aloft at these levels and, and withstand that pull of gravity? We'll have to see. Yeah, I was wondering about Apple, Mike. I mean, are we in a situation where Apple falling less than the overall market is bolstering things more than a lot of other stocks actually going up? Yes. I mean, it's, it's keeping it from, uh, from, from actually getting to, to deeper new lows. There's no doubt about that. I mean, obviously, uh, as I said, it's a negative net contributor. But if it were down, commensurate with NVIDIA, uh, with Meta, you know, with Alphabet even on a year-to-day basis, then you definitely see uh, the NASDAQ 100 have uh, a much deeper uh, uh, tailspin. Mike, uh, good way to look at things. All right, thanks. Uh, as we continue to look for, uh, I mean, we're, you know, by the way, uh, we're not really done with earnings prints at all. We got a lot to get through this week and all, and uh, the lion's share of the, re- the remaining results this week, Mike, are going to be uh, in consumer and before we really move into some of the more media names. Yeah, uh, definitely not done. You got about 75% of the market cap through uh, coming into this week in terms of reporting earnings already. But now, yes, you are getting a little more on the consumer seat. Let's get to the president. I hope there are not enough votes. The main reason why I worked so hard to keep Robert Bork off the court. It reflects his view almost, almost worse. Anyway, look, the idea that concerns me a great deal that we're going to, after 50 years, decide a woman does not have a right to choose within the limits of a Supreme Court decision in Casey, number one. 
but even more, equally as profound, is the rationale used. Right. And right. it would mean that every other decision relating to the notion of privacy is thrown into question. I, I, I realize this goes back a long way, but one of the debates I had with Robert Bork was whether whether uh, um, Griswold versus Connecticut should stand as law. The state of Connecticut said that the privacy of your bedroom, you, a husband and wife or a couple could not choose to use contraception. To use the contraception was a violation of the law. If the rationale of the decision as released were to be sustained, a whole range of rights are in question. A whole range of rights. And the idea we're letting the states make those decisions, localities make those decisions, would be a fundamental shift in what we've done. So it goes far beyond, in my view, if it becomes a law and if what is written is what remains. It goes far beyond the concern of whether or not there is the right to choose. It goes to other basic rights, the right to marry, the right to determine a whole range of things. Because one of the issues that this court, many of the members of the court, a number of the members of the court, have not acknowledged is that there is a right to privacy in our Constitution. I strongly believe there is. I think the decision in Griswold was, was correct overruling. I think the decision in Roe was correct because there's a right to privacy. There can be limitations on it, but it cannot be denied. No. Do you think that the leak has irreparably changed the court? Do you think that this leak has irreparably changed the court? We've never seen this happen before. Well, you know, if, if this decision holds, it's really quite a radical decision. Um, and again, the underlying premise, and again, I've not had a chance to thoroughly go into the report, the, the, the decision. But it basically says all the decisions relating to your private life, who you marry, whether or not you decide to conceive a child or not, whether or not you can have an abortion, a range of other decisions, whether or not how you raise your child. What does this do? Uh, and does this mean that in Florida they can decide they're going to pass a law saying that same-sex marriage is not permissible? It's against the law in Florida? Uh, so there's a whole, it's, it's a fundamental shift in American jurisprudence. The 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 I'm, not, I'm not prepared to make those judgments now about, uh, but you know, uh, I think the codification of Roe makes a lot of sense. Look, think what Roe says. Roe says what all basic mainstream religions have historically concluded, that Right, that the existence of a human life and being is a question. Is it at the moment of conception? Is it six months? Is it six weeks? Is it, is it quickening, like Aquinas argued? I mean, so the idea that we're going to make a judgment that is going to say that no one can make the judgment to choose to abort a child based on a decision by the Supreme Court I think goes way overboard. Thank you. Thank you, What does this mean for the midterms? What does this mean for the Democrats' argument in the midterms? I haven't thought that through yet. Do changes need to be made to the court in light of this if this decision holds? I beg your pardon? Do changes need to be made to the court in light of this if this decision holds? No, we just have to choose. I mean, look, one of the reasons why I voted against a number of the members in the court, they refused to acknowledge 
that there's a Ninth Amendment, that it's used to acknowledge the right to privacy. I mean, there's so many fundamental rights that are affected by that. And I'm not, allow, I'm not prepared to leave that to the, the whims and the, and the, uh, of the public at the moment in local areas. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you, guys. Come on, guys. That is the president responding to the leaked draft opinion on his way to Alabama, where he will tour a Lockheed Mark facility uh, that makes weapons uh, that the U.S. has sent to Ukraine, including some Javelin anti-tank artillery. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Chief Justice Roberts with a statement now uh, this morning uh, affirming that the report is authentic, uh, the draft opinion that was leaked, uh, although he says it does not represent a decision by the court or the final position of any member on the issues in the case. He goes on to say, I've directed the marshal of the court to launch an investigation into the source of the leak. We're about 10 points away from 4,200 uh, Dow session highs. We'll take a quick break here. Tech Check's back in a moment. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Canva. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa, John Fort, and Julia Borston. Got some more pain from media stocks this morning. Take a look at Paramount off the intraday lows, but still lower, uh, despite adding more than 6 million streaming subs last quarter. Julia's going to have more on that in just a moment. First, though, let's get a news update with Morgan Brennan. Hey, Morgan. Hi, Carl. Good morning. Well, moments ago, President Biden telling reporters that if the Supreme Court does overturn Roe versus Wade, other fundamental privacy rights could be in danger. He calls it a radical decision. The president is responding to last night's unprecedented leak from the high court of an early draft majority ruling overturning Roe. Chief Justice Roberts confirms it is authentic and it has ordered an investigation. Protesters and some supporters have gathered outside the Supreme Court. The draft says Roe was wrongly decided and holds that elected representatives, not judges, should decide whether abortion should be legal or not. A final decision isn't expected until next month. And there are still a lot more jobs than people to do them. The government reports there were almost 11.6 million job openings in March. That is the highest on record for data going back 20 years. At the same time, four and a half million workers quit their jobs. That is also a new high. Deirdre, back over to you. Morgan, thank you very much. We're going to turn back to the broad sell-off in tech. North Island chairman and Silver Lake co-founder Glenn Hutchins offering his take on the volatility earlier this morning on Squawk Box. Have a listen. We have a very strong underlying economy, right? Even though the, la the print um, uh, last time was, was, was nominally 1.4 negative, it was really in the mid-threes positive because uh, of the underlying economic activity, right? So I think the econ economy is strong. That's so I, I think that I, I'm concerned about recession. I think that's probably my base case. 
but I'm not concerned about a deeper long recession. Hmm. So where should you be looking for opportunity? Joining us now, GGV Capital Managing Partner, Jeff Richards. Jeff, good morning. Thanks for being with us. I know that you are focused on a longer time horizon. In the past, you've looked to high-quality growth companies like Datadog and Twilio, strong fundamentals. But even these companies have been killed in this market. So what do you do here? Some have suggested on our air this morning that maybe investors should sit it out. Well, that, uh, Deirdre, that always seems to be the advice of folks when we're in a nervous market, and we're certainly in a nervous market. It's been brutal for tech stocks over the last six to 12 months, and in particular, the last 90 days have been really rough. And, you know, as you mentioned, you're seeing great companies, companies we consider great companies that are core to cloud infrastructure and the way uh, the next generation of our economy is going to be built. Companies like Twilio and Snowflake and Datadog and some of these companies that had held up well through the downturn in tech over the last six months have even gotten hurt in the last few months. I tweeted out yesterday, Twilio's trading at three and a half times forward sales, which is a level we haven't seen in a very long time. So, you know, it's hard uh, when the market keeps coming down every morning and you feel like you're catching a falling knife. But we believe over the next three to five years, if you've got that long time term, uh, long term time horizon, these are going to be high quality names to own. So, Jeff, what did you make of Glenn Hutchins uh, sound that we just ran saying that this is an Armageddon. If he does see a recession, which he's expecting, it will be a short one. I really liked your thesis on small businesses. That isn't something we think of typically that you can bet on in public markets. But you do have a few names. And you also say that if we are going if the economy is going to recover, uh, that's a good place to be. Yeah, it's such a great point. So we don't, you know, a lot of small businesses aren't really tradable in the market. And so we don't talk about them a lot. But small businesses make up 40% of US GDP, 60% of Americans work for a small business. So it's a huge part of our economy. Last week, we launched our S&B Tech 50, which is a list of 50 of the best private technology companies focused on small business. And obviously, in the public market, you've got companies like Square and RingCentral and Shopify and Zendesk that cater to small businesses. So if you're looking for a way to play the rebound, and in many ways, we'd argue this is one of the more interesting bets you can make because coming out of COVID, who benefits, who wins as people go out, they eat in restaurants, they go back to doing things uh, live and in person. It should be the American small business. And one way to bet on that is by buying these tech names that supply technology to those companies. And so uh, we highlighted that with the SMB Tech 50. Obviously, the, the companies I mentioned have, have gotten beaten down quite a bit over the last 12 months. But over the long run, we are seeing very positive signals with small business. I'm on the board of several SMB tech companies. We saw as many of a third of workers miss shifts in Q4 due to the Omicron variant. We're now seeing that go away. We're seeing people showing up for work and a rise in purchasing behavior for tech in small businesses. But the, the point that Morgan made earlier and Glenn was just highlighting is the big issue for small businesses, which is labor. It's just really hard to attract workers. And so those businesses are still struggling that with that. And we've got to figure out that if we want our economy to rebound. Hey, Jeff, are we entering more of a Hobbesian state of nature uh, market, uh, lions and gazelles, where you've got companies that are going to be on the hunt uh, to consolidate. And you've got some companies that might be very nice, beautiful, swift companies, but they're the slowest gazelle. They don't necessarily have the resources on board, haven't raised the funding to be able to run faster than the others. And therefore, they might get done in. John, I, I think this could be the story of 2022, which is a tale of two cities. If you're a company that is well capitalized, has a strong balance sheet, you can play offense. And we saw this back in the great financial crisis with companies like Salesforce. They were able to. We're seeing that right now. If you're, you know, IPOs, the average tech IPO from 2021 is down 41 percent. Not a good signal, but those companies are very well capitalized. They've got strong balance sheets and are ready to play offense in 22 and 23. And so we are seeing a little bit of a tale of two cities. If you're a private company that raised capital last year and has 18, 24, 36 months of runway, 
2022 looks pretty attractive. You can play offense, maybe even acquire a smaller competitor. Those companies that have to raise capital or don't have a strong balance sheet or don't have great gross margins or free cash flow, this could be a challenging year. And I, I agree with your sentiment. Yeah, the IPO element uh, is really fascinating, Jeff. It's hard to imagine that we're back. Remember those days where we had the conversation about why companies weren't going public yet? They were staying private for too long. I mean, I, I know you've written that we're in sort of a nuclear winter for IPOs right now, but I wonder how long you think that winter could last. It's a great question, Carl. You know, the big challenge right now is the IPO buyer. People forget that when you go public, there's a buyer of those IPO shares. It's you know, it's not only Fidelity and T. Rowe, but it's crossover funds that do late stage privates as well as publics. And so one of the challenges you have right now is those investors can buy public companies at six to 10 great growth companies, by the way, the Googles, the, you know, not just the Twilio's and Squares, but Googles and, and Facebooks and Amazons at reasonable multiples. And so they're, they're applying those same multiples to our growth stage and late stage private tech companies. That's creating some dislocation in the market. Uh, it's a challenge. We'll work through it. The private market always takes about six to nine months to adjust to the public market. And I think we're in the second or third inning of that. But we are seeing, um, you know, we are seeing companies raise capital. If you look at venture capital in Q1, it was still strong. It's just a much more cautious market where investors are playing a lot, paying a lot more attention to really key underlying metrics, CAC, LTV, gross margin, net dollar retention, mm -hmm. things that historically should have mattered, but uh, in some cases in 2021 weren't, uh, weren't as high on the list of things to focus on. Jeff, quick last one for you. Are public market investors um, maybe growing impatient with adjusted EBITDA metrics? Tony Sakanagi said earlier at the start of the show that investors want to see net income. I know as a venture capitalist, you're looking at earlier stage, but do you think that that's wearing thin in public markets? Well, I'm not a fan of adjusted EBITDA just because you can sort of make up your own term. Uh, I, I, we generally prefer it when companies focus on metrics that are tried and true. Uh, and I think what you see is good software companies that people can understand in particular. I, I say software because it's got great predictable revenue, high margins, good free cash flow. It's the reason you see private equity firms like Toma Bravo, you know, buying some of these companies and other firms taking majority stakes in some of these firms because they look at the outlook, they look at the next five to 10 years and know that the, the total addressable markets are very big. They've got predictable revenue, predictable cash flow. Uh, and trust me, when those folks are investing or buying into a company, they're not focusing on adjusted EBITDA. So the market will adjust. It always does. And, and companies will figure out they've got to present tried and true metrics and stick to them. And it'll sort itself yeah. out. We'll see what happens. We've got a few companies reporting this week that prefer that metric. Jeff Richards, thank you very much. GGV Capital. Let's turn to media specifically. Paramount, formerly Viacom CBS, is falling this morning, even after adding more than 6 million subs to its streaming service. Uh, but as we talked about yesterday, investor appetite for these stocks and strategies seems to be undergoing a massive shift. Julia Borston has more. Julia? Well, John, Paramount's revenue missed estimates. While its earnings, which did beat expectations, they were still down by about half from the year-ago quarter. But streaming did grow faster than expected. Paramount Plus added 6.8 million subscribers. And while Showtime and BET's streaming apps suffered from a contraction similar to what Netflix saw, free ad-supported Pluto TV grew faster than expected to 67.5 million monthly active users. J.P. Morgan saying, quote, remain positive on the growth of Pluto TV given its advertising potential, with the platform well-positioned to lead the global AVOD space. That's ad-supported VOD. Now, this comes as the new front digital ad presentations kick off 
This week, the Interactive Ad Bureau forecasts that digital video ad spend will increase 26% this year and that connected TV ad spend, which is a piece of that, will be a key driver, growing 39% this year to $21 billion. That's more than double the 2020 spend on that category. Amazon's FreeV, that's its free ad-supported service, formerly known as IMDb TV, it just announced a new slate of original shows and a licensing agreement with Disney. This comes after yesterday, NBC Universal's Peacock unveiled some new ad formats and movies and TV coming to the platform. Now, Roku's new front is happening right now. CEO Anthony Wood telling us just last week that he expects more TV ad dollars to shift over to digital. And we're going to be digging into all of this digital ad potential and also concerns of a broader ad recession uh, or an ad contraction on Thursday when we have an exclusive interview with Paramount CEO Bob Backish. That's going to be right here on Tech Check. Dee? Looking forward to that one, Julia. Thanks so much. After the bell today, Airbnb, Lyft, AMD. We will dive deep into those results tomorrow right here on Tech Check. We are back in just a moment. Get a gut check on Western Ditch today. Activist investor Elliott Management offering the company over a billion dollars in incremental equity. The catch, they are calling on the company to separate their hard disk and flash business in a new letter out this morning, reserving that billion dollar incentive for spinning off, selling or merging the flash business with a strategic partner. Western Dig is currently trading around $60 a share, but Elliott sees opportunity projecting the stock could reach at least 100 by the end of 2023 if they go through with that separation. Shares, as you can see, up 15 percent this morning. Uh, on the heels of that letter and one of the best performers this morning in what is a pretty flat taper, at least was until a while ago, John. Well, that's really optimistic about what could happen by the end of 2023. Kind of nice market. Still to come, more details about Elon Musk's Twitter financing, or lack thereof, and how it could affect Tesla. That story after a quick break. Let's get uh, back to software. The sector under pressure with the IGV ETF down more than 20% this year, but Zoom Info reporting, well, what some might call a breakout first quarter, revenue up 58%, the stock now up more than three and a half. And joining us now, Zoom Info CEO, Henry Schuck. Henry, welcome. Um, enterprise software, B2B software, among the standouts this season in general. But uh, this quarter, I mean, 49% organic revenue growth, pretty darn strong. Uh, how confident do you feel, given the shifting macroeconomic environment, in the ability to continue that trajectory? Thanks for having me, John. We feel really good about the sustained demand environment that we're in. We feel really good about what we're hearing from our customers on the sales and marketing side of the house. We're telling us, look, we want to invest in modernizing the way that we find our next customers. We want to modernize our sales and marketing practices. And then we're hearing. Uh, even more demand from our recruiting and talent acquisition clients who are telling us, look, this is the toughest job market we've ever been in. We need digital tools and software to help us find the candidates to fill all of these open positions in our organizations. And so we're seeing really great demand coming from both sides of our business. How many canaries in the coal mine have you got, though? When I look through here and just, I mean, forgive me, everybody's a little uh, you know, gun shy these days, given all of the shocks, um, macroeconomic uh, especially. But you've got a record new business 
in EMEA, Europe, Middle East, and Africa, which is an area where there have been concerns. You've got strong business that's $100 million plus. How are you going to know if that's starting to slow down um, and, and could it turn on a dime? Yeah, I think a couple of things. First, our business internationally is focused on Western Europe and Canada and Australia and New Zealand. We have little to no customers in Eastern Europe, and we haven't seen a change in the demand environment there. This is a business that lives on a variety of data and metrics. We run this business and instrument it so we can see things coming from far, far away. And so we feel really good about what we're seeing and the numbers come in both domestically and internationally um, and feel good about our strategy to continue to grow internationally, which we grew over 80% year over year in the quarter. Okay. You closed two acquisitions uh, right as the quarter was ending uh, comparably and dog patch advisors. Given how uh, confident you feel in the core business, are you going to continue with M&A as a source of future growth or no? Yeah, it's a great question. Look, we grew, we grew the top line this quarter 58%. We grew, we, had, we did that with operating margins of 39%. So we're growing and we're profitable. And so when we're out in the M&A market, it's a really small market of companies that we can acquire that won't be diluted to us. And so we're looking for companies that are growing, that are growing profitably, that we can bring into Zoom Info and make that company grow faster, grow more profitably, get integrated to our whole platform. We have a, a vision for what our platform can be, and we're out in the market looking for build, buy, and partner opportunities. And if we see something that matches up with our criteria, we're still going to be acquisitive. Uh, but right now, we're focused on bringing, uh, bringing comparably into Zoom Info and focused on bringing dog patch advisors into Zoom Info as well. Excited about those acquisitions. Uh, but we're still out in the market looking at potential M&A transactions. All right. Uh, with Zoom Info at the moment up a cool 4%. Henry Schuck, the CEO, thanks for joining us. Thank you, John. If you missed part of the show, don't forget to follow and subscribe to our podcast. You can listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. As the VIX working its way back to 30, still holding 4188. We're back in a moment. One more thing, Elon Musk trying to ease some of that Twitter deal burden. Reuters reporting that Musk is in talks with investment firms, including Apollo and Ares, as well as some high net worth individuals about chipping in to lower his $21 billion cash contribution and the margin loan that he secured against Tesla shares. Musk is reportedly speaking to current shareholders, including Jack Dorsey, about rolling over their stakes with him rather than cashing out. And management registering some worries about the aftermath in a filing. Risks include, quote, our inability to attract and retain key personnel and recruit prospective employees and the possibility that our current employees could be distracted and their productivity decline as a result, due to uncertainty regarding the merger, uh, D, something obviously we talked about in the wake of his initial offer. Yeah. As for the shares, virtually unchanged, but they've come a long way from those levels where there was deep skepticism about it happening. Yeah. In terms of employees being distracted, you can make the argument for the flip side, too. There may be some employees who may be reinvigorated, excited to see what someone like Elon Musk does with the companies. In terms of going to find other investors to perhaps put in some of that equity pie, John, uh, I can think of a few wealthy investors who would be putting their money where their mouth is, really, if they were to do that, because they've been excited and optimistic about the changes he could make. Yeah, those investors' mouths tend to be a whole lot of places, though. <laughs> 
um, more places than their money. And so when somebody <laughs> who's got more money than everybody doesn't want to put more of his own money into it, I don't know, raises lots of questions for me. But uh, Elon Musk has been very good, Carl, at getting people to part with their money. And usually they end up making a lot. Uh, so that's going to entice some folks, you imagine? Yep. Uh, guys, obviously things are going to get even busier from an earnings standpoint. After the bell tonight, we're going to get lift. We'll do Airbnb. AMD shares down 40% year to date. We're going to talk to Lisa Sue in the morning, John. I did notice Morgan Stanley today resumed coverage of NVIDIA with an equal weight. Looking for a gaming correction, uh, not as dramatic as we've seen in recent years like 2018, but maybe 20% down in some quarters of the fiscal year. And that's certainly going to be a concern for uh, AMD, as, even as they get some market share gains in data center. Carl, can their market share gains counterbalance the weakness in the overall consumer market? We certainly saw what that dynamic did to Intel. It was able to lean on data center and hyperscalers. To what degree can AMD do the same? And how does that match up with investor expectations for that stock? We'll see. And, of course, uh, the Fed meeting will steal a lot of attention tomorrow as we get that press conference tomorrow afternoon. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.